and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee Stud. The Tennessee Stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Please welcome the creator of the popular 605 podcast and the president of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, your co-host, the great Ryan Last. Hello again, friends. And welcome back to another edition of Ron Fuller's Studcast. I am the great Ryan Last. It's my pleasure to be with you once again as the Tennessee Stud takes us down that road of wrestling history with at least half of his collarbone functioning. We'll talk more about that later in the show. But without any further ado, the man of the hour, the host of the Studcast, the former archaeologist, the legendary Tennessee Stud himself, Ron Fuller. Ron I, I gotta be honest with you, I can't get the collarbone injury out of my mind. To me, it's one of the more gruesome injuries you could have. But how are you today? How are you today versus uh, I'm, I'm, I'm well today. <laughs> I feel much better up there in that area, thank goodness. You know, but uh, yeah, it is a nasty injury, and we're going to talk a little bit about that one today. And, uh, you know, I'm just glad to be here. Uh, got the old horse saddled up and uh, ready to roll, my man. Well, we're going to get rolling in one second, but real quick here at the top of the show, we want to remind you, the latest Super Studcast, Part one of Super Studcast number 22 with the assassin, Jody Hamilton. This is a great 80 minutes of wrestling history. Hear the assassin's take on the Georgia War. Hear praise for Tom Renesto when he was the great Bolo. And of course, what it was like the main event, Madison Square Garden, at 19 years old against maybe the greatest drawing tag team in wrestling history, Argentina Rocca and Miguel Perez. Hear more about that and so much more at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. For only $2.99, you get in the door. But, Ron, let's get in the door this week on the studcast. Where are we going this week? Well, many different things happened last week, and a lot of emotions came out in last week's studcast, uh, in addition to a bad collarbone injury. Uh, we're going to start today with a promise that I made to Jerry Jarrett three months earlier then the time frame we're in now, back in June of 1975, when I pulled out of working for him on the west side of Tennessee, uh, and I needed I needed to work on my family life at this point, and I'd made a decision to spend the summer supporting my wife and her archaeological dig. Like you mentioned a second ago, I do have archaeological background, strangely enough. Uh, and uh, Jerry didn't really understand my commitment to her and my two sons, uh, and and, and he asked if I would work for him some in September of 1975 after the dig was finished. So if I'd have known what I knew <laughs> in uh, on uh, August the 30th of 1975 that I was going to suffer a major injury, I would have definitely said no. But uh, I'd been his main event heel for more than six months. I had to give him a short notice when I left and uh, because of the archaeological dig. And, and, and I'd been paid very well while working for him and for Roy and Nick uh, in that Memphis and Louisville. I thought it was the right thing to do under the circumstances uh, to go ahead and obligate myself to make some shows for him in September. And uh, so we're going to talk about those shows in Memphis and Louisville and just how difficult it was to work with a collarbone injury. We're also going to discuss why I did not work for my own company during that two-month period of time that I was out, how that affected my business, and tell our great StudCast listeners how they can see the results of my injury for themselves. Uh, we will talk about the September 12, 1975 card, the TV to support it, the results of the matches, and the payoffs during the critical time in my first fall with Southeastern Wrestling. 
So we've got quite a bit of quite a bit of ground to cover, and uh, and the old horse is saddled up. So I'm just going to jump in there and roll with it, Brian. All right. Let's begin with my promise to Jerry Jarrett, the booker of my grandfather Roy's western side of Tennessee and Kentucky, in Memphis and Louisville in June of 1975. In order to commit to my marriage and my family, I had to let Jerry know I was not going to be able to work shows for him anymore in Memphis or Louisville after June 28, 1975. It was obviously unexpected news for him, and he wasn't happy with me giving him a short notice. Uh, in fact, it was the only notice I'd ever given in the territory except for Florida when I bought Knoxville and I left to run it. I had to give a notice in Florida. Uh, it had taken me a couple of weeks to decide in the early part of June 75 whether to pursue wrestling 100% or focus more on my family that was in some trouble at that point. When I did make finally make the decision, it left me with very little time to notify Jerry. And he had helped me when I came to Knoxville with very little income from the future. Uh, one of the first things I found out after purchasing Knoxville is that you don't purchase a business without money in the bank to fund that business while you try to build it. Uh, I didn't have that. <laughs> I didn't have that benefit when I bought Southeastern. Uh, and I did not have any money much in the bank and uh, nothing to fall back on. And it was a real struggle for me. So, uh, and Jerry had used me very well and he'd paid me well. And with the income I was making from work in Memphis and Louisville from basically January to June of 1975, I really don't think I could have <laughs> paid my losses in my company in those early days and, and made a success out of Southeastern had I not had that opportunity to work in Memphis and Louisville. So I felt a little obligation to work for Jerry, uh, even though I was really, really badly hurt. As an alternative, I could have possibly contacted uh, Sam Muchnick, president of the NWA in St. Louis. This is back when I came to Knoxville originally, and and uh, Jerry basically offered me the job. I could have probably gone and worked for Sam. Uh, he's the president of the NWA, and he's the owner of St. Louis Territory. And uh, and uh, Sam liked my ability in the room. He was he was really high on what on what I was able to do in the ring. And shots in St. Louis paid very well, but they also required two things that quickly eliminated Sam as an alternative to Jerry. I'm talking about to Memphis. Uh, he ran his city, St. Louis, on the same night as my city of Knoxville. And if he was going to use me big, he was going to need me for his TV. Every time I ever went to St. Louis and wrestled for him, he required me to stay over and work his televisions for him. That meant I sat there on Saturdays, and I did not do the TVs until Sunday afternoon. I already knew what he would require from the many shows and weekends I spent in St. Louis in 1973 and 74. Uh, I would be returning and I'm going to be returning in January of 1976 to work some more shows for, for Sam. But Sam, Sam wasn't a good fit for me. Jerry's situation was much, much better for me at the time. Uh, Memphis ran on Mondays. Louisville ran on Tuesdays with no conflict for the Fridays or the three-day weekends that I was going to be running in Knoxville. Jerry was also agreeable to record my matches on Mondays and recorded interviews to use on his TV show for the following Saturday that would promote the, the Monday, the next Monday I was going to be back. So this had allowed me to run Southeastern Relaxing, my company, without conflict. When I gave him that notice in June of 75, he asked if I would work some shows, after I finished the dig in the fall, and I told him, yes, I had to commit to working six shows. Six shows in Memphis, actually nine shows in total, six shows in Memphis, two shows in Louisville, and one in Lexington. The first date was starting with September 7th in Louisville and ending on December 21st, 1975 in Memphis. At the point where we're making this agreement, I'm not hurt. I'm healthy. I'm in good shape. I had, I had no conception that I was going to be hurt. Uh, neither of us had any idea that I'm going to be badly injured. When he found out soon after the injury that I was hurt, he, he called me up and, and he said, you know, I don't, I don't need to book you, Ron. I don't want to book you. But I felt like I owed it to him because of what I said earlier. He basically, by using me in my grandfather's territory, 
helped me to survive uh, with Southeastern in Knoxville. So I felt like I, uh, I needed to work some shows for him. Uh, and he only asked me about these nine shows. So uh, I, I, I told him, no, I want to work the nine shows for you. And, uh, and it was over a period of 12 weeks, almost three months. So nine times in three months, uh, I, I was hurting. Uh, once I once I realized how bad I was, I knew that I had stuck my neck out there big time. But I'd never worked with that type of injury before. So uh, I insisted he leave me on those cards. And, uh, and I honestly thought that, uh, that it wasn't going to be nearly as difficult to work with that injury as I thought. Boy, did, was I really wrong. I mean, <laughs> it was unbelievable what, what I had to go through. Should so, he have let you work? Do you think he should have let you work as a promoter? If a guy has that kind of injury and he insists on you letting him work. I mean, was Jerry disappointed when he said, well, I can't book you because of this? Or was he understanding? And should he have booked you considering your injury? Well, it was he booked me because I insisted. Uh, and I think he, he made a point of telling me, Ron, I, I really don't want to do this if you if you're not capable of it. And he gave me the opportunity to get out of it if I wanted to. But like I said, I, I felt an obligation to him because he had treated me so good and because uh, that territory uh, on that side of the state uh, helped me to survive and build my own company. And I felt like I really owed him something. Uh, so, uh, you know, and then he helped me out, uh, you know, once once we we settled on the dates, then uh, he took care of me as, as best he could. Uh, in the first six of those shows, he put me in tag matches with my brother. Uh, that was great. I mean, gosh, uh, hadn't been for that. I don't know how I would have done it in singles. The last three of those matches were all singles, but they weren't going to take place until December of 75. And by the time I got to that point, I was feeling good enough to be able to working for my own company again. But, but again, Ron, my question, should he have booked you? I mean, if a guy has that injury, should the promoter book him or should he wait? Well. I, I I did not tell him. I, I wasn't forthcoming. <laughs> I guess is a good everything. way of putting it. <laughs> totally forthcoming with how bad I was hurt. You know, and he did not question me about, well, what kind of uh, uh, collarbone injury do you have? I mean, obviously, there's all kinds of different injuries to the capable of the collarbone. But this one is, uh, it was pretty much off the charts. It was really, really a bad one. And and I, I didn't tell him just how bad it was. And then finally, you know, and I just kind of kept insisting, no, Jerry, I want to work these shots for you. I feel like I owe it to you. Uh, and I wanted to keep a good relationship with Jerry. He had really helped me. And he finally uh, just, he, he relented and he said, okay, Ron, uh, let's, let's book you for these nine days, these nine shows. So uh, let's start with the first match that I had there. Only eight days after my injury. Uh, I mean, uh, gosh, <laughs> it's just amazing. Um, you know, most fans probably don't know, but most every wrestler on occasion works while they're injured. Uh, all organized sports, such as football, baseball, basketball, and hockey, they're team sports. And uh, they they have paid doctors and trainers and therapists and, and all kinds of people to work full time when and help them when they're injured. Wrestlers are there. They're always independent contractors, uh, you know, until Vince came along, started putting guys on on salaries and stuff. Uh, you know, it was really difficult to. Uh, to be a wrestler, uh, you know, you you didn't have any help. Uh, you had none of these people to go to when you were injured. Uh, these major sports, sport, team sports, they also paid for everything, including your salary. And even and if you were hurt, you got paid, uh, even if you couldn't perform. Not wrestlers. I mean, every penny necessary to restore your health as a wrestler came from your own pocket. And if you couldn't wrestle... You just didn't get paid. It was as simple as that. When you got hurt bad, you not only had to find the people you needed to help you, but had to pay them as well. <laughs> so uh, sports teams had the best physicians, trainers, and therapists because those medical professions out there wanted to be associated with these big teams. And I learned that very quickly with my first hockey team. I mean, I was inundated. I couldn't believe they were hammering on my office door wanting to come in and do things for me for free. 
I was like, wow, <laughs> you know, the, after being a wrestler and dealing with it like a wrestler had to, it was a, it was, it was shocking to me almost. I'd never really thought about it until I got into hockey. But as a wrestler, you were lucky to find someone who was good at what they did and, and more so someone who really cared about you and your health. As a pro wrestler, you learned how to care for yourself or you just didn't make it sometimes. Uh, and a lot of guys left because they could not stay healthy and they could not eat and they could not feed their families. It was, it's a tough way to make a living. So if you cared for yourself, uh, how do you care for an injury? If you're, if you're responsible for your own care, how do you care for an injury that you've never suffered before? The doctors at the hospital told me that my clavicle injury was one of the worst they had ever seen. That when my right collarbone was violently driven from my SC joint out of my sternum, it was pushed downward into my chest. They said at best, I would be very lucky if I returned anywhere near that same spot. They, they, were, they said... If your collarbone now it is driven away from your sternum, it's going to maybe rise back up toward that same j joint connection. But there's no way to tell, Ron, where it's going to go and, and how long that will take and if it and how, how near to that same spot that it's separated from is it going to maybe end up and actually almost repair itself. Um, and, uh, so my only hope was that, that uh, it's going to slowly rise from my chest close enough to contact the SC joint somewhere and grow back somewhere near where it originally was. It was a life-changing event for me, as they called it. I'll never forget the guy's words, the doctor's word. So this is a life-changing event for someone who wrestles. And the likelihood uh, that I would ever be able to wrestle again was very small. Uh, and they added... <laughs> to really make uh, matters worse, uh, the doctor added in and he says, uh, no therapy or surgeries could help you. There's nothing really we can do. You know, you're going to have to see how you, how you, how you do with this injury. Terrible. At any point there, do you start thinking, okay, well, I have to retire, but I could still be a promoter. I could still promote this. Maybe that'll be easier for me. My dad promoted in Memphis. He didn't really wrestle. Maybe I could do it. Yeah, I thought about it, but, you know, I was so young. I, I was less than five years in the business, and I was gung-ho, and and, uh, and I felt like I was a pretty darn good worker, and I knew that I was going to build my company, a lot of it around my ability, get myself over, and I would never have to worry about having a great baby face that may leave me because I'm going to be that great baby face. So... You know, I did not want to walk away from the wrestling part of it, uh, but obviously I could have, and I could have made money. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, I was really left uh, uh, with one of the only means most wrestlers have to recover. And that that's kind of what trial and error was the only way to learn as well as getting advice from all those old timers out there that had been there before before you and and it suffered through these different types of injuries in the case of my injury even with good doctors and trainers there was not much that could be done it was going to take time and a lot of pain to get over what had happened to me and that's how the doctors at the hospital explained it to me pretty much in those words this is going to take time and you're going to suffer a lot uh, before this thing ever receipts itself maybe you know i think they use that word this this joint may reseat itself but uh and it may not so it didn't take but one night and day for me to realize that this injury was not going to allow me to get any rest or release me from the pain anytime <laughs> i did not believe in pain killing pills and i took none during my recovery uh i, I never got comfortable anywhere it didn't make any difference i i wasn't comfortable in the bed at night i wasn't comfortable sitting in a chair i wasn't comfortable standing up i was miserable constantly and i think at once i realized that i decided i might as well go ahead and keep my promise to jerry jared i mean this is the way it's going to be uh go and do what you got to do i mean uh 
that's what wrestling was all about. Uh, guys wrestled hurt and, uh, and injured big time uh, a lot of their, their careers. And uh, this was just my first, uh, my first experience and my first taste of this real pain. So how do you do it? So how did you actually work a match, especially early on? Forget about weeks later, December or whatever else you committed to. How did you work a match just days after your injury? Well, actually, uh, eight days after I was injured, uh, I got on a plane September 6, 1975, three hours after my Southeastern Wrestling television show. I boarded a flight to Louisville, Kentucky for a rare Saturday night show in a city that was normally a Tuesday night uh, town. Uh, when I arrived at Knoxville Airport, where I'd become extremely recognizable figure after six straight months of steady flights in and out, going to Memphis, going to Louisville, going to Florida, back and forth. Plus, I'm fairly tall and recognizable. And uh, so I, I, I went into the airport that day and and uh, I proudly displayed my huge black eye from the night <laughs> from the night before the baseball <laughs> in the baseball stadium at home. And, uh, uh, because I got hurt on the 30th, but I didn't get the black eye until six days later when I could actually get in the ring. I was, I was a walking billboard in the airport. I'll tell you that I, I was accustomed to people always looking at me because I was so tall, but in this case, now I got the big black eye to go with it. And I mean, everybody was looking. I kept thinking when this process was going on, everybody was staring at me, how proud my father would have been. <laughs> That's a strange thought, but you know, he loved those black eyes and those hard ways and, I was thinking, boy, he'd have loved this look, man. So it had only been seven days since I got hurt, and I had slept probably only about 28 hours in those seven days, about four hours per night if I was lucky. Uh, you couldn't sleep on your back. You couldn't sleep on your side. You couldn't sleep on your stomach. You just couldn't sleep. You couldn't find a, 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 a anywhere to get any relief. Uh, my brother, who was living in Nashville at the time, picked me up at the airport in Louisville, and I, and I had— I had to carry everything in my left hand throughout the airport everywhere I went because the pain was unbearable if I tried to put anything in my right hand because it was my right clavicle that had the problem. The match that night was against a new team that Jared had put together. It was really starting to get over. Dennis Condry and Phil Hickerson. I was in pain just standing in the corner, and when tagged in, <laughs> I could not stay in there very long. Robert... Uh, he did almost all the work, even getting the heat bef uh, before the hot tag he gave to me. And I, had no, I had no choice but to throw some punches once I got that hot tag. And, uh, and I slammed both guys, even Phil Hickerson, who weighed close to 300 pounds. Uh, stupid maneuver. I, you know, I, I just I forgot that I was hurt, basically. Uh, and, I, and I felt my collarbone move inside my chest when I had him up for the slam. And I did my best just not to drop him. Uh, both Condry and Hickerson knew I was hurt, obviously, and they took it easy on me when they finished the match with a win over me. They beat me in the middle. They, oh, gosh, what would you expect them not to, you know? Uh, the match was probably about 20 minutes long or so, and I wasn't in the ring more than five minutes of that total. It felt like the match lasted an hour uh, when I got back to the dressing room, I remember I was shaking and sweating profusely, but it wasn't from the match. It was from the pain I was in. Uh, and uh, Jerry came in the dressing room. Jerry Jarrett came in the dressing room to check on me. And so did uh, several other guys who were on the cart and knew that I had that bad injury. Uh, so I felt good. I had fulfilled my booking and I had two more days before my second match. So as painful as the match was, the ride back to Nashville to stay with my brother was even worse <laughs> as that pain just got, it, it came home with a vengeance because I had been in that match and I had probably slammed those guys and just threw punches. It didn't take much to just really, really, uh, just pain was horrible. So what do you do? You said you don't take pain pills. You're in the car ride. You're in so much pain. Do you drink some beer? Do you put some ice on the collarbone? What do you do? for that drive and what do you do for the next day? Well, I never drank beer. I wasn't a beer drinker. My brother was a big, big beer drinker like most wrestlers. And, uh, this night I drank beer 
I said, boy, I'm going to get me a couple six packs too, Rob. You know, <laughs> I need some help here, you know. And uh, and I did get some ice and I put it into a towel and I kept it on that right collarbone as much as I could. Uh, they gave me a sling to wear, uh, you know, the, to give you a little support for your collarbone. Uh, it, because when you let your arm hang, it drug your collarbone down with it. Uh, so it was, like I said, it was just a horrible, horrible injury. So two nights later, we entered the ring in Memphis to a tremendous roar from the crowd. It had been 10 weeks since I had been there. Uh, Robert and I had the same two wrestlers, Condry and Hickerson, as the two nights earlier in Louisville. But this match was for the United States Tag Championship. They were the United States Tag Champions. Uh, thank goodness the crowd was really into it, and the match was very similar to the Louisville match. They beat me again, but instead of slams, when I got the hot tag, this time I did the old giant Baba shoot them in the ropes and put my foot in their face as they came charging in. <laughs> It was much easier on my collarbone than the slams were. Uh, the crowd popped, and, you know, and I was pleased to get some kind of good reaction. I mean, as hurt as I was, I was like, geez, man, look, I got a little pop. Uh, I don't think anyone in the audience ever knew that I was hurt. And that's what all four of us wanted, all four of us in the ring those two nights. Uh, that was two of the nine shows finished. After a pretty much sleepless night filled with pain at the Memphis airport, I boarded the flight back home to Knoxville the next morning. I'm going to be off for seven days before returning to Memphis the following Monday. Uh, then, then I'm going to stay with my brother in Nashville, ride to Nashville after the match, and go the, on Tuesday to Louisville to do it again. Uh, my collarbone's still bad. I mean, I felt there was just as much pain in it as the first week that I had had. It was like, gosh, I, I kind of expected to get a little better, but it just didn't seem to be improving at all. Uh, Rob took me after that match in Louisville back to the Louisville airport and dropped me off. Uh, four matches were down at this point. I had two weeks off before the next one. So, you know, I'm going to get a little bit longer break between, between these first four and the next one. I caught the plane in pain. <laughs> And it seemed like I was not getting him any better. And, you know, such was a wrestler's life. You know, I mean, that's the way it was, uh, you know, back in those days when you got hurt, hey, you you just had to deal with it. And, uh, you know, uh, I was injured and I, and I dealt with it. You know, there was one other reason that I agreed to work for Jared a few times after I was hurt. I had many small injuries, as all wrestlers do, continuously since starting at the ring. Once you get in the ring, you just seem to be hurt all the time, especially when you start first start in the business. But I was able to easily wrestle with most of those injuries while hurt. One obvious injury that was prolonged and very painful was my cauliflower ear. And we spent an entire stud cast talking about a cauliflower ear. Uh, I did not want to work in my own company if I was not able to do my best in the ring. Without at least trying to work, I would not be absolutely sure that I couldn't work. So that's kind of one of the reasons I went ahead and did this is because I wanted to know for myself, maybe you can work hurt like this. Uh, I felt I was a lot better. It was a lot better for me to try and fail in front of crowds that would not be my exclusive audience for years ahead. I want to, if I'm going to have bad matches, I want to have it in Memphis and I want to have it in Louisville. I don't want to have it in my own territory. I wanted to give my best to the Southeastern fans. So that's why I wanted to stay out of the ring in Southeastern. Uh, my experience with the four matches we just talked about for Jared proved to me that I could not do what I needed to do in my own company until I recovered enough from my injury for it to not be noticeable to fans. I had no timetable or knowledge of how long that's going to be. After talking to the doctors, I certainly didn't. And as badly as I hated it, I decided that I needed to get 80% better than I was then uh, before I booked myself in any Southeastern matches. Uh, this two-month absence that I'm going to be dealing with from Southeastern wrestling cost me money, cost me momentum in my business, forced me to plan for my return. Uh, made me add new talent that I might not have added 
But ultimately, it's going to lead to, oddly enough, Brian, three straight Coliseum shows following my return in November of 1975. Each stud cast has a, has a title and a photo that goes along with it. Uh, this episode's title is called Wrestling Hurt. And the photo for it is a very special one that I recently discovered. It's a shot of Les Thatcher and myself sitting at the Southeastern Wrestling TV set for an interview shortly after I came back to work for Southeastern in November of 1975. Uh, and, and I'm going to give you the where to find this in a, in a few seconds. But if you look closely at my chest, you see this picture, you're going to see where my right collarbone has reseated itself well below where it normally had been and obviously protrudes from my chest. The joint that looks like a knob of some kind sticking out of the right side of my chest appears to be darker in color than the rest of my chest even. Uh, I was lucky because it eventually would move upward to almost its natural position as time went on. And uh, if you'd like to take a look at this photo, you can see it on my website and you can also see it on social media. In fact, that's where I got this photo from. Uh, and uh, my website is obviously it's at tnstud.com and you can click on studcast and find it at number 118 uh, title wrestling hurt or you can click on the gallery and find it there under number 118 well ron before we get going with any more of the studcast we're talking about wrestling hurt let's talk now about a guy who hurt a lot of wrestlers super studcast number 22 part one with the assassin the stud approaches every Super Stud Cast in a different way. Super Stud Cast number 22, part one, features one of the all-time greatest masked wrestlers ever, Jody Hamilton, the assassin, at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Even if you've heard other interviews with stars that Ron picked, few, if any, go into the depth that the stud does. Maybe that's because he's personal friends with so many of those he brings to life on his Super Stud Cast. Details and small facts that few discover, like Jody Hamilton's being the youngest Madison Square Garden main event wrestler ever, make his Super Stud cast unique. If you've never listened to one, you have no idea of the history each one uncovers. Just like his regular weekly stud cast reveal his remarkable family history, the three-hour Super Stud cast dig deep into the sport's illustrious past in a way that true fans find fascinating. Super Stud Cast number 22 unmasks and personalizes the assassin at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast for only $2.99. Saddle up and ride into wrestling history today. There you hear it, Super Stud Cast number 22, part one, out right now with Jody Hamilton, the assassin. Hear it today, hear one of the great heels of all time one of the great masked wrestlers of all time talk about his tales all the various places and various characters he ran into throughout wrestling not a big mario galento fan we find out here on this show but check it out today it is an action-packed 80 minutes available at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast for only 2.99 you get in the door but we'll have more information about that at the end of the program Ron, I want to get back to the show, but one quick question for you. You mentioned Sam Mushnick earlier. The periods of time where Sam wasn't the president, where either Eddie Graham was president or Fritz von Erich was president, did people still think of Sam as the leader of the NWA? I always did. I can't speak for everybody, obviously, but Sam was so respected uh, and admired uh, throughout the National Wrestling Alliance and by all the promoters worldwide. And there were promoters literally worldwide. They came from everywhere in August uh, to Vegas for the annual meetings. And uh, yeah, Sam was, Sam was extremely respected in the business. And uh, Eddie got that spot, uh, I think, because, uh, you know, people said we need a change. Sam basically uh, ran that thing from 1948 for way on into the, geez, I guess into the 80s, just about. Uh, uh, pretty much was the man at the top. And uh, 
you know, it was it was hard for it was hard to get used to somebody else sitting in that chair when you went to those uh, National Wrestling Alliance meetings, because Sam had been such a strong figure there. Well, uh, uh, now we're going to change gears a little bit here, Brian. Uh, we talked a little bit about the injury and everything. But let's go back to the week after uh, that I received. Actually, close to two weeks after. It's the card of September 12th, 1975. It's still in Bellmeyer Baseball Stadium. And it's the week after that I have been run into the post and had made the trip to the hospital. Uh, so, and as I said in the last studcast, the first night in the baseball stadium, I recorded the wild incident where the assassin rock hunter attacked me and posted me and injured my collarbone. I also had them record the ambulance arrival to come and get me. The crowd gathered as they loaded me into the ambulance and, and the last match for the Tennessee Tag Championship that night. Uh, the Friday, September 12, 1975 card, let's just take a look at it. DeVoy Brunson versus Bob Bowman in the first match, and Brunson got a win in that match. Don Wright wrestled Sputnik Monroe uh, in the second match. Don Wright won that one. Tommy Sigler and Les Thatcher teamed up against Norvell Austin and Bill Dundee. Uh, and that match was won by Sigler and Thatcher over Bill Dundee. Uh, the main event was a return match, but not for the title. It was a brass knucks because when I was injured and gone to the hospital, my brother, we changed that whole card, and my brother went and took my place, went partnered with Ron Wright, and they actually beat the Tennessee Tag Champions, the Stomper, I mean the Assassin, and Rock Hunter. So the main event was not for the title. It was a brass knucks, no time limit, no DQ match that continued until one man on either team could not continue. Uh, and it had the new Tennessee Tag Champions, Ron Wright and my brother Robert, versus the former champions, the Assassin and Rock Hunter. This wild match was won by Ron Wright and my brother Robert. Uh, the television recorded on Saturday, September 6th. Now, this is the day following my being posted, my being in the hospital the night before. On Saturday, September 6th, after this night of September 5th uh, in the Bill Meyer Baseball Stadium, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that Friday, September 12th card. Uh, this, this day's TV is going to promote the following Friday, and that is September 12th. Most of the TV show is going to be dedicated to my injury because so much heat came from the videos shot that night, the night before, and uh, so much heat was on those guys because of what happened. And that was all I could do. I, I wasn't going to be able to put myself on these cards. I had to figure out how to heat up the assassin and rock hunter to a level they had never been before. So we're going to open the show with the ambulance's arrival at the baseball stadium. A lesson I talked about, the opening of this program. And this was a very, very good very good way to open the show, uh, you know. Actually, we came right out of the opening with the ambulance coming in with the lights on and the siren coming into that baseball stadium, uh, the, the exterior side where the fans had parked their cars. Uh, and then the fans came out to see where see me and to see what was going on and am I going to be put into the ambulance and all that. So they started aligning my as they rolled me out to the ambulance on a stretcher, they started aligning both sides of the path all the way out to, to the actual ambulance. We filmed that. We filmed the ambulance coming in. We filmed the fans lining the maybe being put into the ambulance and the ambulance leaving the, the area. Less and Phil Rainey did an excellent job. And uh, we're very in a very serious analysis of what fans were seeing and explain what else they would see in this television program leading up to this ambulance ride and finishing the evening before it's all over. We set the stage for a most unusual television show that would be talked about for months afterward. I had fans that just said, wow, I got, you know, I had some people say, well, I cried. I cried watching that show. So, um, you know, the opening match that, that day on this show is uh, the Assassin and Rock Hunter. And they're on the television live, obviously, against Tommy Rich and Rick Connors. 
It's a short and violent match in which they got rid of Tommy Rich on the outside of the ring and the assassin set up Rick Connors for a pile driver. And when he was getting ready to do it, uh, Rick Hunter grabbed Connor's legs and drove him head first into the mat when the assassin delivered the pile driver. After the win, Connors was carried from the studio, and the assassin and Hunter went to the desk to watch the incident that would be the subject matter for much of this television show. The two heels arrived at the set before a studio audience that was still upset with the video that showed the ambulance taking me to the hospital, arriving and taking me to the hospital at the beginning of the show. Add to that that little video the finish they'd just seen with the wrestler being carried out, uh, and and you got a pretty volatile crowd. The show was uh, just starting, and gosh, the crowd is really, really into it. When the assassin and Rock Hunter couldn't finally be heard, you know, the crowd was booing so bad that they were trying to talk over videos, and you couldn't hear them. So when you could finally be heard above the booze from the audience, they demanded less to show the video of how they injured me. Well, less sold it. Well, we had talked about it. We had this video, but I didn't want us to show it. I wanted the guys that hurt me to show the ambulance arriving. So less sold it. Well, and he looked at them very puzzled by their request for a piece of video that he wasn't aware of having been recorded. He, you know, so they explained that they had hired their own man to shoot this one for their own archives because they knew this was going to be something special that they never wanted to forget. They wanted to have this ambulance coming in here. They wanted to show that because they knew they were going to do this to me, obviously. They also told us they had come early with this video to the station and the staff in the production room was definitely aware of what was going on. And then they told the director upstairs to roll the video. Les stopped the video just as it began to run and was extremely upset that they had tried to take over control of the show. There was a great argument between the three of them, and Les finally refused to watch the unscheduled video and got up and left the set. Uh, the assassin, once again, he didn't care, nor did Rock Hunter. The assassin, once again, ordered them to run the video. The fans booed continuously as that video showed taking shots to the and then the video showed very plainly the shots to my face, the hard way shots to my face, and how they drilled me into the steel ring post with my collarbone. They reminded everyone of how I had become this long thorn into their sides, in their sides, and that they had for weeks threatened to hurt me bad on every TV show if I didn't back off. They, you know, they made it plain. Hey, we kept telling him we're going to hurt him. We're going to hurt him. And, you know, he wouldn't back off. So we hurt him. So the fans really exploded when they started laughing and asking for people upstairs to show that ambulance driving away again after hurting me. Then they had the audacity to close the segment and welcome the fans back after the commercial break that was going to last for two minutes because they weren't going to let Thatcher back on the set. <laughs> so they had basically kind of in the first segment here taken over the show. Uh, and uh, so it, what they, and then to hear what they were going to do, then they took that two minute interview and they talked about what they were going to do to Ron Wright and my baby brother, Robert, the next Friday night, the interview was wild. The crowd just were explosive. They just tried their best to drown them out for the entire two minutes of the interview. Even it was absolutely to me, the best heat segment ever on Southeastern wrestling at that time. Uh, we had never had a show that started off like that. I mean, that rocked that much heat early in the show. And it probably was one of the best ever period on Southeastern wrestling. One of the best segments ever. So how did you get Les Thatcher back to the desk? Well, obviously when they finished the interview, uh, there's a bumper that ran. Uh, before the second match, and uh, they just they they went away. They they weren't they weren't interested in controlling the, the sitting there and commentating on the match. They just wanted to show less, put him in his place. I guess that's what they were thinking they were doing, and uh, and it really got a lot of heat. It just added to what they were already doing and what they had already done to me. The second segment is Norvell Austin getting a great win over Rocky Smith with his diving headbutt to the face as Rocky came off the ropes. It looked good live. 
but even better in slow motion. Man, I love that slow motion. Gosh, fans loved it too. Norvell and Bill Dundee joined Les for the second interview slot. They talked about their tag match the next Friday night against Tommy Siegler and Les Thatcher. And there's Les sitting there with him. Uh, you know, it's kind of a kind of a strange place for a commentator to be. He's a, he's wrestling too sometimes on Friday nights. But uh, so Les kept his cool. They were on him pretty big time. Uh, as was expected since he's the show's commentator, you know, but toward the end, the, both of them got really on him big time and they started making threats about what they were going to do. And when they stood up, Les stood up as well and they got face to face and, uh, and all of a sudden, uh, Tommy Siegler appeared from out of nowhere and gets right behind Les, uh, so Phil Rainey, who is the announcer for the program and the second commentator with Les most of the time, he made a rare appearance on a live interview, and he stepped between the four of these guys, and he called for the end of the interview. The bumper that we had that had the revolving wrestling statue uh, going round and round appeared for the 10-second break between each segment and closed perfectly with the pre-recorded next segment, which just came right out of it and straight into the pre-recorded personality profile on the set with Les and me. I had arrived early that Saturday. Uh, I was going to do every show until my return to the Southeastern Ring. I was going to be there for every television show. I had to be. I wanted to avoid the fans as much as possible and work behind the scenes as much as I could. I would not be on another show after this one for almost two months. As with most personality profiles, we pre-recorded them in advance uh, so that uh, there was no one in the studio. The director, Bill Kincaid, opened up this personality profile when we did it earlier in the morning with a full shot of less seated. Uh, when they panned to me, I was shocked at how bad I looked <laughs> after I watched this back later after it was done. I was also seated, my arm in the sling that I'd been given the night before. Now, this is the night before this program is being aired, the night after I've been to the hospital. And I'm, I've got the sling that was given to me uh, in the hospital to support my collarbone till I was well enough not to need it. Uh, that looked bad. But the big old black eye from the night before stole the show. And I mean, that was what that when I saw that eye and on the television and they zoomed in there. Uh, wow. It's like, uh, man, man, uh, this is this is what we needed. That was my first thought is this is exactly what we needed in this little town in which they half believed in wrestling. So Les opened up with comments about our long friendship and how he'd never seen me badly hurt uh, as long as he'd known me. He apologized to fans for the way the assassin and rock hunter had tried to take over the show earlier. He explained to fans how long he had been in professional wrestling and how few things in all that time he had ever seen were as bad as what had happened to me the night before. He then asked me what I had to say about all this. So, you know, I was very humble, far from what I'd been as a heel on earlier shows. I apologized to fans for letting them down, underestimating the two thugs that did this to me, you know, basically. And and they're shooting these close shots and then they're backing off. Uh, it's I look pretty darn beat up. Uh, and I was pretty darn beat up. I apologized to my partner, Ron Wright, for not getting to that Tennessee Tag Championship match with them. I thanked my brother for taking my place, and I congratulated the new Tennessee Tag Champions, my brother and Ron Wright. I then asked the director to please run the same video that the assassin and rock hunter asked him to run earlier, the one in which I was injured. The one, and I brought to people's, this segment was, it normally five minutes. It probably ran seven, eight minutes that day. And uh, so they ran the film in which uh, I brought attention to the opening of this video. There were all three teams in the ring. Uh, and we were going to wrestle that night when this happens in three teams, uh, two teams basically against the assassin. And if the assassin and Rock Hunter, the Tennessee tag champions, could beat us both, they still remain champions. If either of us, 
the German team or uh, or me and Ron Wright won, we were going to become the Tennessee Tag Champions. I pointed out the German team of Von Steiger, Von Heller, and their manager, Sam Bass, Ron Wright, and myself, and the assassin and rock hunter were all in the ring there at the beginning of that night. There has been no matches yet. There, There's a hat with two names in it. One is the German team. One is uh, myself and and uh, Ron Wright. I said there were two unpopular teams. I'm talking in this point, and I said there's two unpopular teams in the ring with five guys total against the two of us that the fans like, me and Ron Wright. I drew attention to how both teams attacked us at the exact same time and how the German group took Ron Wright off by himself to give the other two, uh, the assassin and hunter, an opportunity to do their damage to me. Obviously, I, I brought the, I made the point. Obviously, this was a planned attack. I pointed out how the assassin hunter intended to get me outside the ring to have their way with me. They choked me out. Basically, what they did, stomped me and kicked me and knocked me out of the ring. Uh, then I really brought the attention to how they took turns hitting me in the face after I was outside on the baseball field. And the intention uh, they had of at least busting my eye or maybe much worse than just busting my eye. I watched that video closely as those hardway punches connected with my face. And I was sure that those people at home watching saw the same thing I did. One look at my face told that whole story better than anything I could say. Sometimes a look like a picture is also worth a thousand words. I focused on the way they set me up for the steel post shot, one on each side and both with a handful of my hair as they started running me face first toward that steel post. I told fans that I knew they intended to smash my face into that post, but I was able to move slightly to the left, my head slightly to the left, uh, just enough that my right collarbone took the entire blow. Uh, Les asked them to stop the video when I went down face first on the dirt around home plate. He asked me to tell fans at home what I had told him earlier, how the doctors described my injury and how long I would be out of action. He closed the profile by saying something about how I had become a star in Southeastern so quickly and would be missed until I could return. This entire personality profile screamed, wrestling is real. Third segment was another win for Tommy Siegler. And finished with Tommy and Les talking about their tag match against the following Friday against Norvell Austin and Australian Bill Dundee, which they had almost got into it earlier in the program in the second segment. So they they had their opportunity to get what they wanted to be, they had to say about uh, their their match against Austin and Dundee. Final segment of the show brought the house down. As the new tag champions entered the studio, Ron Wright, my brother, with their new belts after the other team had already been introduced. Everyone in that studio was on their feet as the new champions made a victory lap around the ring, shaking fans' hands. Uh, it had been a very serious 45 minutes so far for the audience during this show, and I think that fact added to the celebration that the fans were having. I also think Ron Wright and Robert felt it and turned that victory lap uh, in, the, in the audience into a second victory lap. They went around twice, uh, and everybody, I, it, was, it was pandemonium. It was wonderful to see that on the television program. They had a great match with it. The Avenger tag team that had been there locally for a few weeks. And uh, Robert took the win with the fuller leg lock. Uh, they went straight to the set to watch the one remaining video from the night before that had been sent that had not been seen yet. And that was their match in the finals against the Assassin and Rock Hunter for the Tennessee Tag Championship. Their championship win over the Assassin and Rock Hunter uh, was right there plain as day for everybody to see fans were already celebrating uh, and that those everybody was watching this match on video on the monitors and they reacted the entire five minutes of this video uh, just like it was they were actually seeing the match uh, live and for the first time 
It was hard to imagine that only 200, less than 200 people could fit into that studio, that 200 people could make that much noise. Uh, Les threw it to the commercial break. Uh, when the show returned two minutes later, the studio audience was still celebrating. Ron Wright and, my, and Robert were there at the desk, and they started off, Ron started off with an apology to Robert for allowing him, me, to be injured that way. Uh, and, and it was especially upset because he and I did not get the chance that we had to wrestle together as a team for the very first time. Uh, Robert finished off by reminding fans that the hold he had just used to win the tag match had broken more legs for our father than any hold in wrestling history. He reminded fans that I used it to break a leg on this same Southeastern TV show recently. That was Ricky Gibson. So uh, he then finished by making a promise that he was going to break one of the assassin's legs or one of Rock Hunter's legs without it, with that hold. Uh, the next Friday night. The crowd popped, obviously. And then Ron Wright, as usual, man, got in there perfectly, and, and he said, uh, Partner, you, you and me, we're going to teach. you going to teach me that hole this week. And next Friday night, we're going to both break a leg. So, so it ended up, the fans went crazy, and uh, it ended up, uh, wow, amazing, amazing wrestling show, television show and pointed so well toward the next week. And what happened the next Friday that you were building up to? Well, uh, even though we were still in the baseball stadium, uh, and uh, the next Friday the fair was still in town, uh, I felt a lot better after this show ended than I did, had when I walked into that television station probably six hours earlier that morning. Uh, I felt like we had a really, really good chance to do a little business with this thing. Uh, following Friday night, we almost duplicated the crowd of the Friday before at around 2,400 fans. We were about 2,500 fans the week before. Uh, I hadn't had, I was at, with the, with the fair still in town and being a, a venue that was not liked by wrestling fans. I wasn't disappointed with the house. I'll tell you that. I kind of felt like the house would drop off more possibly, but with all the negatives we faced, we're still drawing. I look back at it. And we were drawing twice the number of fans that were there on the first night that I ever wrestled in Knoxville. That was about 11 months earlier than this time frame. So I had to be pleased with it. Uh, we're in a bad time of the year. We're in a bad venue. Uh, I just got hurt and I'm not on the card. And we're still drawing twice as much as what was there the first night I ever arrived in that town. Uh, I, I didn't, I, I was trying to, I was trying to get myself in the right frame of mind that uh, that uh, I, I I was expecting business to drop, maybe potentially dramatically, and this house held its own, and that made me feel good. What was the house for this Friday night? The gross house was about seventy two hundred uh, of that for the from that twenty four hundred fans and the total payoff was about uh, a little over twenty one hundred. The bottom boys, Brunson, Bowman, Don Wright, Spudnik, and the ref, they got a hundred each. Uh, Siegler and Thatcher, Dundee and Norvell, that tag match got about a hundred and eighty dollars each. And the main eventers, Ron Wright, my brother Robert, the assassin and rock hunter, they all got about two thirty five each. So it was basically uh it wasn't a bad payoff. It's a bad time of the year. Uh, I think everybody was probably happy with it, and and I was probably one of the happiest ones of all. Well, it'll be nice to end this episode on a happy note, Ron, and that's what we will do. We want to remind you, you can become friends with the Tennessee Stud on Facebook, the page, Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud. Of course, the Stud is also on Twitter, at Ron Fuller Welch. You can follow me on Twitter at Great Brian Last, and the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network is on Twitter at Super Podcasts. You can also hear me on the 605 Super Podcast at 605pod.com or available wherever it is that you find your favorite podcasts. Want to remind you once again, the latest edition of the Super Studcast, part one of Super Studcast number 22 with one of the most famous mass wrestlers of all time, none other than Jody Hamilton better known as The Assassin. 
Check it out today. Everyone's talking about it. 80 minutes of wrestling history by one of the most diabolical sounding men you will ever hear. Check it out today. TNstud.com or Patreon.com slash studcast. Only $2.99 gets you in the door. Ron, where are we going right here on the studcast next week? Well, Brian, before we before we get to that, I, I kind of want to remind fans that it's getting time. Uh, Christmas time is coming up, and uh, and I've just received a new order of uh, those Tennessee Stud Studcast T-shirts, uh, the black and the blues. And uh, if uh, anybody's interested in getting a Christmas present early and sending it out, uh, I don't know how long these are going to last. You can go to my website, tnstud.com, and uh, shop the stud store for any type of gift t-shirts uh photos whatever you want it's that time of year uh next week my man we're going to uh talk about what i do accomplish for southeastern in spite of my injury i'm not going to be able to work obviously but i'm going to accomplish more maybe without working than if i were had been working uh we're going to talk about booking spot shows and tracking down new stars, of which I'm pretty amazed at uh, what I'm able to accomplish in the two months before I come back to work. Also, the last card in the Bill Meyer Stadium of September 19th, 1975. We're going to talk about that card, uh, the TV promoting it, the results, the payoffs, and the three upcoming back-to-back Coliseum shows that are going to take place in November of 1975, one of those with Andre the Giant. Ron Fuller's Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. For the Tennessee Stud Ron Fuller, I'm the great Brian Last. The story continues next week. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. One, two, three. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.